0: You are now listening to the October 12th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk.
1: Welcome to Walking Our Talk. With Alan and Polly Heller, join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time.
2: Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Hi, Polly. Hello. We always like having her around. Oh yes. So here's what Paul says. So, naturally, we proclaim Christ, we warn everyone we meet, and we teach everyone we can, all that we know about him, so that, if possible, we may bring every man up to his full maturity in Jesus Christ. This is what I am working at all the time, with all my strength that God gives me. And that's Colossians 1, 28 through 29 in the Phillips version. So... It's helping people come to know Christ, but then he's doing everything he can to bring them to maturity, Paulie, And that's what I think we're talking about when we're talking about discipleship.
1: Well, that's true, Alan, because we have a responsibility as a discipler to help people that we lead to Christ to grow in their relationship with Christ. And if somebody comes into our life who... Is new in the faith maybe we didn't lead them to the Lord but they're new in their faith and they need somebody to walk alongside of them we have a calling from God to walk with them and to help them walk through that
2: so you think of a little baby infant if a baby was brought home from the hospital and just left to its own devices it couldn't eat it couldn't change itself I mean, eventually it would die. I mean, it needs somebody to care. And even in Peter, First Peter, it says that he compares that like a newborn babe, you need to long for the pure milk of the word. Right. And I don't know about you, if you've had children, when they were hungry, they let mama know by screaming their little heads off until mama gave her a breast and uh, gave some milk. so
1: Right, but you don't take that newborn baby and say, oh, here's a steak or mm-hmm. Here, here's a really yummy salad or chew on this carrot. You know, they're not ready for that.
2: Right. So we've been talking about the characteristics of a disciple and the actions. Last time we talked about the actions that stop people from becoming disciples it could be something from the world system that squeezes us into its mold it could be material things it could be a person it could be my background it could be a lack of faith in believing that god will in you know the gal that pointed me to the person that led me to christ she was just afraid she wouldn't have a husband and so she went back to the person that did not know the lord And um, shipwrecked her faith. Right. There are other people that in my life over the years where I just saw somebody who, you know, is a disciple. They're faithful, available, teachable. They're wanting to be. uh, Paul said, Follow me as I follow Christ. He didn't say, Follow me because I'm perfect. And so there were two people very good at leadership. But one was centered around God and the other guy was centered around, he had a secret sin of pornography and was destroying his life, but his skills to be able to help me at work were great. But in the midst of it, those were the things that were eating at his soul and eventually that turned around but a disciple is faithful, available, teachable, and willing to obey and do the things that God calls him to do. A disciple needs to come under the authority of a discipler, not that the discipler is always right, but temporarily he is the authority that God is using in a disciple's life. And we said the definition of a disciple is a learner or a pupil needs to be a balance of context of one-on-one disciple-making as well as being in a group with other people that you work with. It needs to be in the context of a local church. And I think sometimes we have a hard time, especially uh, lately we've seen a lot of leaders in the church that are national figures that are falling and recanting their faith and Again, our need as a follower of Jesus is to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And so our focus and what I've found that helps me Paulie, over the years is to focus on here's what the word says, here's what the Lord says. I don't know where to put where this person is when they're recanting their faith after twenty or thirty years and divorcing their wife or they've had a ministry to hundreds of thousands or even millions of people over the years in a big organization and radio ministry, TV ministry, conferences of hundreds of thousands of people, satellites, uh, all this stuff. And then we find out there are sexual indiscretions or whatever. Even though here's what Howard Hendricks used to say – the blessing of God is on his word, not necessarily the person that's preaching it. And that's a little difficult to deal with uh, because the people are so real and we've trusted and we've put our faith in them because they're preaching the word and they're doing the word and then we hear that they're recanting the word. And so that's a very difficult place.
1: Yeah, that's hard. And part of it is that with all of our social media and our television, <laughs> uh, people get so much more exposure to so many more people than even like Jesus fed the 5,000. So how what was his largest audience ever when he was speaking live to a group of people? Maybe 5,000 people, and any one of us can put out a video on YouTube and have many, many, many more views on YouTube than Jesus had at one time when he was speaking. So because of that massive amount of exposure, so many audiences can see what somebody is saying, hear what somebody is saying. And it can really cause somebody's ego to get very, very puffed up in their picture of themselves. To get distorted well, not
2: only that i mean somebody said that the for those of us in ministry and who are very successful the target is much bigger for the enemy so it's not right. always the pride of the person that's causing them to fall sometimes there are attacks from the enemy as well, well outwardly yeah that, and temptations true, that they may fall to
1: and the fact that if somebody is exposed as having a sin in their life at some point in their life or in some area of their life, that doesn't mean that they are no longer a Christian or a believer. The Word makes it very clear that these people need to be restored, and God's heart is for, for people to be restored. After they've gone through a period of confessing their sin and repenting of their sin and going through a process of recanting their, not their faith, but their sin and coming back to a place of walking with the Lord again. And that that's just what we all need to do. It's just that we don't all have audiences of millions of people following us and being affected by us. And the the hard, sad thing is people now who are completely recanting their faith and walking away because they no longer agree with a certain piece or part or teaching of Christ. And that's another entire topic. But one of the things that I was wanting to talk about when we were talking about teaching faithful men or women, this situation that I ran into with a woman that I was discipling who was going along well, and but she was still fairly young in her faith when her husband was unfaithful to her. Mm-hmm. And she could not forgive him. And I told her that she needed to forgive him. She didn't want to because of her own history and her own background with a father who had been unfaithful to her mother. And so she had grown up with a bitterness toward men who are (laughs) unfaithful And, you know, kind of this. I mean,
2: that's pretty normal.
1: Right, of course. But it was her flesh. And yeah, her husband needed to be disciplined for what he had done. He needed to change his ways and to ask forgiveness and to go through his own process of forgiveness and restoration. But as he was going through that, she absolutely refused to forgive him. Hmm. And I could see that I couldn't break through that barrier in her life. Hmm. And I knew even though I had led her to the Lord, I couldn't disciple her Hmm. any longer because this was such a major stopping point in Hmm. her life. And she thought that if she forgave him, then she was completely letting him off the hook and he was making a fool of her and all of that stuff. At some point, I just had to release her and say, okay, Lord, you have to deal with her in this area in her life. And even though I still love her and I talk with her occasionally, I cannot say that she is my disciple.
2: Right. And, I mean, one person waters, one plants, and God gets the increase. And I think that needs to be the attitude of us as disciplers. And I'd like to do a series of podcasts on what makes a discipler, what is a good discipler, and what are some of those characteristics. And one of them is that it's not about you. Again, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, the first sentence is, it's not about you it's about what God's doing in people's lives not about what we're building or what we think you know it's a intoxicating thing to see people's lives changed unbelievably and go from darkness to light but it's not about us it's about the Word of God and the Spirit of God and God himself drawing that person into that relationship and so you do whatever you can um, you know we knew a couple one time there was you know the wife was in our house all the time and raised kids together and we're in the same Sunday school class in the same church and the same activities that we did together and one time we went on a retreat with them and the husband opened up about something that was very difficult for him to share about and <laughs> We came back from that weekend after knowing these people for about, I don't know, five or six years and just totally being entwined in our lives. And we were wondering why she didn't get in touch with you. And the next thing we heard was, my husband told you, told me, do not talk to me. And so the shame of his past, instead of unlocking a door and him walking through it, he slammed the door shut, and we no longer had a relationship until later on God allowed us to bring it back, which reminds me of, you know, Paul and Barnabas having their great disagreement over John Mark And Paul saying, you know, he's not useful for the ministry. He turned his back on me. And then Barnabas said, no, he's useful for the ministry. I'll take him. And then later on, Paul says, yes, he is useful for the ministry. So I think we need to take people, you know, somebody said we should look at what's going on in the segment of life. This segment of life may be a shipwreck and terrible, but possibly they may repent, they may recant. And go back to their first love.
1: Well, I I think, again, of the illustration that we gave earlier about the rich young ruler coming up to Jesus and Jesus saying, well, you just need to sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And he was like... I mean, you hit on the one thing. (laughs) You know, my security is in my wealth. My security is in all these things that I have. And you're asking me to get rid of all that. Can't I just come and follow you without having to do that? And Jesus loved him. He looked on him with love and compassion because he knew that this was the one thing that was going to be hardest for this guy to give up and follow him. And I think of of my friend who could not forgive her husband. That was too much. That doesn't mean that she doesn't have salvation. That doesn't mean that she doesn't love the Lord. But it just means that in terms of being a disciple, she limited her growth because she couldn't forgive in this area. And that's as far as she can grow. She can't go beyond that point until she's willing to release that.
2: So we've been talking about characteristics of a disciple. And we talked about the fact discipleship is not just sitting over coffee and talking, although it may involve that. It's not an intellectual experience. It's not a program or a 13 weeks and then you're done. We talked about what is a disciple. It's a trained person who's taught by somebody You put yourself under the authority of that person to teach you, and certainly you'll have other people that will teach as well, but this is an intentional thing that you're doing, an experience that you're doing. And we talked about being a God pleaser, being diligent, having a heart for God, being available, being transparent. We talked about illustrations of what stops a person from becoming a disciple and going all the way. And we talked about Second Timothy 2, 2, where it says, Teach faithful men, and of course men and women, who will teach others also. And so that the ultimate goal is, you know, Paul taught Timothy, Timothy taught faithful men and women, and then they taught others. And so the whole goal of our disciple-making process is to see others winning people to Christ, knowing that they have a relationship with him, and then training them to be able to share with others so that they can come to know the Lord and live a life that's pleasing to him. And, of course, John 10.10 says, He came that they might give you life and give it abundantly. If you've never received Christ, if you've never invited him into your life, that's the first step of being a disciple To know, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He also, in Romans, we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And that he wants to have a relationship with us. And he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And he says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And so if you want to do that right now, let's just pray. And Lord, there's somebody out there that wants to come to know you today. And uh, they, they don't know quite how to do it. But Lord, you just said, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you will be saved. Lord, I, I pray right now that they will ask you to forgive them of their sins, to bring them to a knowledge of you, that they'll start reading your word and going to a place of worship where they can have others who will come and disciple them. So help us to be the kind of people you want us to be and repent of our sin and have you come into our life and you say you are faithful to forgive all our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. If you pray that prayer, please get in touch with Heart and Soul or uh, Walk and Talk. You can just get in touch with us by going to our website, walkandtalk.org. It's been a great time talking about discipleship. Next time, we want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a disciple maker and also review a little bit about what it costs to be a disciple. So keep walking your talk, and we'll see you next time.
1: This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
3: but because of who you are i am a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow a wave tossed in the ocean vapor in the wind still you hear me when i'm calling lord you catch me when i'm falling the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me, not because of who I am, but because of what you've done, not because of what I've done, but because of who
0: up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Unity in the Church based on Joshua chapter 7.
4: We'll start in John chapter 17 verse 20. This is the end of Jesus' prayer right before He goes to the cross. And this is how He closes it, verse 20. I do not ask for these only That's a reference to his disciples Who he had been praying for up until now But also for those who will believe in me through their word So that's you and me Everyone who believes in Jesus Jesus is praying for us Right here So what does he pray? He prays that they may all be one Just as you, Father, are in me And I in you that they also may be in us. That is an amazing request. That we in the church might be one with the same kind of unity that the Father and the Son share in the Trinity. You can't get any more unified than that. That's what Jesus prays for us. So that, here's the purpose, the world may believe that you have sent me. We'll come back to that phrase in a minute. Then Jesus prays it again. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, here's the purpose again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. What a prayer. There's so much we could talk about here, but don't miss the big picture. It's in those notes. Unity in the church is so important that Jesus died for it. Right after praying these words, Jesus went to the cross. Why? Oh, please listen closely, particularly if you're visiting this story that has the power to change your life forever. God created every single one of us. At this moment, God is sustaining every single one of us. And every single one of us has sinned against God meaning we have turned aside from God's ways to our own ways. We have said we know better than God what is best for our lives. And as a result of our sin, we are separated from God. We will one day die. That is the payment for sin. And if we die in this state of separation from God, we will spend eternity separated from God. But God loves us. God loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus God in the flesh, to the world where Jesus lived a life we could not live, a life of no sin. Then, even though he had no sin for which to die, Jesus chose to die. But if he wasn't dying for his sin, whose sin was he dying for? He was dying for your sin, my sin. Jesus died to pay the price for our sin. And then, as if that good news wasn't good enough, three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and conquering death so that any one of us, no matter who we are or what we have done, can be restored to a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Anyone, anywhere, including anyone today who turns from themselves and trusts in Jesus will be forgiven of all their sin and be given eternal life with God. We invite you to receive God's love in your life today. And when you do, you will realize this is what unites the church. This is who the church is. We are not a group of people who share the same history, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. We are not a group of people who share the same political positions. That's not what Jesus died for. Jesus died to make us one around him. Just as he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. Unity is so important In the church, that Jesus died for it. And then, watch this. Jesus prays that this unity would be a reality so that the world might know that God sent him to die for their sins. Don't miss it. Follow this in your notes. The unity that the church displays to the world affects the spread of the gospel in the world. We talk all the time around here about taking the gospel throughout the city, throughout our country, to all nations, but don't miss it. We won't spread the gospel in the world if we don't show unity of the church. This is so important. Other people seeing Christ hinges in this sense on this kind of picture of unity. So important and it's so not easy. So that's where I want you to turn me over now to Romans chapter 14, verse one. So let me set up the context here. Paul is writing this letter to a pretty cosmopolitan church at Rome where the followers of Christ in the church were having disagreements over what food to eat or abstain from eating. You had people who said it's okay to eat meat. You had others who said we should not eat meat. And there were disagreements about particular days that some people thought should be honored and celebrated. Other people didn't. So what does the Bible say to a church where the followers of Jesus in it disagree with each other? So let's hear God's word. We're going to read from the beginning of chapter 14 all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. So it's a long passage, but let's follow it all because this word has power. Listen to it. God says, Romans chapter 14, verse 1, "'As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, "'but not to quarrel over opinions. "'One person believes he may eat anything, "'while the weak person eats only vegetables. "'Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains.'" And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. One who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains not on the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the approaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." even who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Again, there's so much we could talk about here, but let's get the big picture. So if you're following your notes here, the general question being asked in the Bible then was, how can a church hold together when some members are so different from each other. And I put general there because there are specific issues that are being addressed here in the first century between Jews and Gentiles about what food to eat or what day to celebrate that are very different from the context we're in now. And the references to strong and weak here are in some ways unique to that context, and they take a lot of time to dive into in order to truly understand. So what I'm going to do today for the sake of time, so we'll study this more in depth one day when we walk through Romans. But for today, instead of drilling down to that level, I'm going to stop one level up and just acknowledge there are differences here among the Christians in Rome. Some who are labeled strong here feel free, for example, to eat meat. Others who are labeled weak here don't feel free to eat meat. And it was causing all kinds of problems because each group was prone to think of the other, you should believe what I believe. And it affected the way they related to each other when, for example, they had a meal together or they came to a certain day. So that was the unique circumstance then that's in a variety of ways different from the situation we're walking through today. So we're not even saying in our situation today who might be strong or weak. Everybody likes to think of themselves as strong, but that's not the point today. We're just acknowledging here in the Church of Rome on certain issues there were clear differences of thought, opinion, even conviction. And the general question the Bible is answering is, how can a church hold together when some members are so different from each other? And I think that question makes this passage very relevant for us. We as a church have over 100 nations represented in our church. We come from all kinds of different backgrounds, All kinds of different histories from all kinds of different ethnicities with all kinds of different traditions even in the church. And as a result we have all kinds of thoughts, opinions and convictions that affect the way we relate to each other. So how can we as this church hold together when some members are so different from each other? And the answer that the Bible gives in this passage is not be in different churches so the Bible doesn't say have a church for the carnivores over here and the vegetarians over there or have a church for the Jews over here and the Gentiles over there probably would have been easier but that's not what the Bible instructs them to do here nor does the Bible say they should create a church that is comfortable for only one of these groups that serves one but not the other or that gives preference to one over the other now, the Bible says that when members of the church are really different from each other, the answer is build unity around Jesus. Welcome one another, Romans 14:1 says. Chapter 15, verses five and six. May God grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Build unity around Jesus, put as plainly as possible in this passage, if the Christians at Rome focused on what food they were eating or what days they were celebrating, and they didn't focus on Jesus, there would be major damage in the church. They would not stick together. Mark it down, whenever we lose our focus on Jesus, there will always be damage in the church. Always. So, the critical question for us now is, How do we build unity around Jesus? So how do we build and maintain unity around Jesus? Well, listen to what God is saying to us in Romans 14 and 15. One, when God's word speaks clearly and essentially about an issue, obey the word. Now, every word matters there. I'm using words with specific meanings, so follow with me. When I use the word clear here, I'm referring to what is clear in God's word for obedience. When God's word clearly says to do this or not do that, we obey. For example, when the Bible says do not lie, we don't say okay, so there's the people who believe it's okay to lie over here, the people who believe it's better to tell the truth over here, and we unite together. Like, no, that's not what the Bible's teaching. Where God, Jesus has spoken clearly through his word, we believe it and we obey it. This is what unites us, the word of God, ultimately revealed in Jesus. And that's the point of this passage. These issues here are not a matter of sin, of disobedience to God's word, according to one's conscience, specifically one's level of faith. The Bible is not saying That those who eat meat or don't eat meat are sinning. Followers of Jesus may approach that issue and a lot of other issues differently according to their conscience. What matters most is that any one of us is operating out of faith in God and His Word. That's how chapter 14 closes. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases in Romans. The obedience of faith. So when you have a clear word from God in the Bible, obey it. And then, added the word essential in your notes because... Each of these groups in Romans, to some degree, thought it was clear that they should or shouldn't eat meat. Paul, who's writing this letter, actually sides with the strong, who are free to eat meat. If we had time to dive in deeper, we could look at why he would argue biblically, you can eat meat. For the record, I eat meat. But the point is, it's not essential to hold that conviction. One, to be a follower of Christ, and two, to be in the church together. It's not essential that we agree on this issue in order for us to have fellowship in Christ as the church we are free to disagree and still have fellowship in the church not every issue rises to the same level we have freedom in Christ in the church to think differently about some things but that's the challenge right so what do you do when you don't have a clear word from God in the Bible that is essential for Christian brotherhood sisterhood in the church as we've defined here and the Bible says When God's word does not speak clearly and essentially in this way about an issue, do what you believe best honors Jesus. That's the language. Romans 14, verse 6 The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. We live to the Lord. We die to the Lord. Whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. The point is, we are free to do whatever we believe best honors Jesus. And you know what's really interesting? The Bible says here that it's good to have strong convictions about what we believe best honors Jesus, even in situations where we have freedom. And this seems a bit counterintuitive to me. Like if the aim in the church at Rome is unity, then I would expect the Bible to say about non-essential things don't have strong convictions. But the Bible actually says the opposite here. Chapter 14, verse five. One person that one day is better than another. All another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The Bible doesn't say, don't have conviction about what you should or shouldn't eat, what days you should or shouldn't esteem. God actually says, you need to be convinced in your mind that what you are doing honors the Lord. And if that's abstaining from certain food, then so be it if that's eating certain food, then so be it. So in our differences, it's actually good for us to have strong convictions about what most honors Jesus. You think, well, doesn't that make the problem worse? People who are different have strong convictions? No, not if we follow the rest of what God's word says here. Keep going with me there in your notes. God's word says that when others in the church have different convictions on Decisions that, as we've defined, are not clearly and essentially addressed in God's word, what do we do? We love them. Obviously, we love everyone who has different convictions than us on anything. The Bible teaches us to love our enemies. All the more so, the Bible teaches us to love one another. That's the thrust, really, of this entire section in Romans. Starting back in chapter 12, when God calls the church to love one another with brotherly affection, like family, genuine love. You see this theme all throughout what we just read. Welcome one another. Do not pass unbiblical judgment on each other. Do not despise each other. Verse 15, if you do, you are not walking in love. Love others in the church, which means practically you listen to and respect others' convictions. You realize there are followers of Jesus in the church who think differently than you. And it's loving to listen to them, and then to respect the reality that they believe differently than you. The Bible could not be any clearer to every Christian in Romans 14.1. Do not quarrel over opinions, even opinions where you're convinced in your own mind. Don't quarrel with each other, verse one. Don't despise each other, verse 10, and don't destroy each other, verse 15. Don't do it. We live in a culture of contempt, of disgust with those who think differently than us. This is evident, not just in the way we speak, post or tweet, evident in the way we think. Here's the deal. We may not disparage someone publicly with our mouths or our tweets or posts, but if we're not careful, we can build a whole case against them in our minds in which we conclude that we have it all right and they have it all wrong in a way that just feeds pride inside of us. And we don't even realize it. So how can you avoid this temptation? First, you should look to see if there is even a kernel of truth in the most exaggerated and unfair broadsides. There is usually such a kernel when the criticism comes from friends. There is often such truth when the disapproval comes from people who actually know you. So even if the censure is partly or even largely mistaken, look for what you may have indeed done wrong. Perhaps you simply acted or spoke in a way that was not circumspect. Maybe the critic is partly right for the wrong reasons. Nevertheless, identify your own shortcomings Repent in your own heart before the Lord for what you can and let that humble you. It will then be possible to learn from the criticism and stay gracious to the critic even if you have to disagree with what he or she has said. If the criticism comes from someone who doesn't know you at all, and often this is the case on the internet, it is possible that the criticism is completely unwarranted and profoundly mistaken. I am often pillared, not only for views I do have, but also even more often for views and motives that I do not hold at all. When that happens, it's even easier to fall into a smugness and perhaps be tempted to laugh at how mistaken your critics are. Pathetic, you may be tempted to say. Don't do it. Even if there is not the slightest kernel of truth in what the critic says, you should not mock them in your thoughts. First, remind yourself of examples of your own mistakes, foolishness and cluelessness in the past, times in which you really got something wrong. Second, pray for the critic that he or she grows in grace how do you get there? Is by focusing on Jesus and what is clear and essential to our unity in Him. There's a famous axiom that has often been used in the church, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. That's what we're dealing with, a situation where followers of Jesus have convictions about a particular issue that is not clear and essential in God's Word. That leads to the last thing the Bible says here about loving one another amidst disagreements. And to be honest, I would think the Bible would stop before this one. Like, realize there's differences in the church, listen to and respect each other, focus on what unites you, sounds good, let's call it a day. But God takes it one more step here, and this one, I believe, is the hardest of all. Amidst our differences, God says to look for opportunities to please others in the church who have different convictions than you. Listen to chapter 15, verses one and two. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That is interesting. We usually think of being a people pleaser as a bad thing, right? And It is in a sense, because we're supposed to live to please God above all. But what do you do when God says to live to please others? And not just anybody but specifically those in the church with whom you share fellowship in Christ and not just anybody in the church, but specifically the brothers and sisters in the church who have different convictions than you. You know that person in the church that you strongly disagree with? Look for opportunities to please them. This just took things to a whole other level. The specific application here in Romans is that when a brother who feels freedom to eat meat is around a brother who doesn't, because that brother believes not eating meat is most honoring to Jesus, then the brother who normally eats meat puts it aside whenever he's around his brother who doesn't eat meat. This brother doesn't compromise his conviction. He holds it fully. But in love, he looks for opportunities to please those who have different convictions than him. There are so many applications of this. So here in Romans, I'm not sure exactly which group in the church was larger or smaller. The carnivores or the vegetarians. But I can imagine that if one group was larger than the other, then there might be a tendency for that group to take over. So say there was more meat eaters. Wouldn't it be tempting for them to say, listen, the vegetarians can just learn to adjust. And they celebrate all these holidays, but we in our group no, we don't have to. So they'll learn to submit to us. And Paul says, don't do it. I have an obligation not to please ourselves, but to please our brother our sister, for their good, to build them up. And I can't help but to think, we can talk all the time about unity as a church, and we can say, yes, we unify around the gospel, the essentials, and in non-essential conventions, convictions, we have freedom. But then what happens in practice? Those things that are not essential for our fellowship in Christ in practice, we end up leaning toward whatever most people prefer. And if you're not in the larger group, find yourself constantly having to yield. So I wonder if one application among many of Romans 15 is for any one of us, no matter what group we're in, the larger or the smaller, but especially when we find ourselves in a larger group on an issue, where the Bible doesn't speak clearly and essentially like we've discussed, to really think about what is good for our brothers and sisters in the church who believe differently than us. All this to say, I look back at last week and I was faced with a decision. And I think I chose what many, if not most, Peep Church would have chosen. I don't believe that was sinful. I really believe I did it to honor the Lord. But I also know that it was not good for some people. And that is why my heart is still heavy on both sides of the issue and a number of other issues. And I really want to learn to look for opportunities to live for the good of Bible-believing, Bible-obeying brothers and sisters in who have different convictions than me. You say, what? That's crazy. What kind of world are you living in? That's so weak. How would you do that? Romans chapter 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. Christ laid down his life to please me and you. This is the gospel. The God who gave his life for us And this gospel compels us to live very differently, otherworldly, really, as the church. Where God has spoken clearly and essentially, as we've discussed, we will not be moved. And where God has not spoken clearly and essentially, we have convictions that we hold on to strongly, Yet we look for opportunities to live for the good of our brothers and sisters whose convictions are different than ours. Honestly, I don't know all this means in the past or the future, but I do know that if we would learn to love in this way, the gospel would be a lot clearer to a watching world, particularly here in Washington, D.C. That leads to the pastoral encouragement for us moving forward from God's Word. This is straight from the text, Romans 15, five. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has bought harmony for us with his life. So let's work hard for this harmony and let's not let anything in this world steal it from us. Let's show grace to each other Let's have patience with each other, just as Christ has done for each of us. Let's live in Christ-bought harmony with God-glorifying hope. With God-glorifying hope. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Then jump to the last verse we read, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God has given hope to us. What is our hope? We belong to another kingdom. This is back up in chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We love our country, but we are living for another country. And we honor our president as God's word tells us to do. We honor our president, but we do not hope in him. President is not our hope and neither is any president or the past or the future. Our hope is in a coming king. One day, you and I are gonna wake up in the morning and we're gonna have no idea what's gonna happen later that day. We're gonna have no idea who's gonna make a surprise visit. We'll be going through our day, business as usual, when all of a sudden, instead of a voice calling you or me from backstage, we're gonna hear a trumpet boom from the sky above And in a moment that we have waited all our lives for, we're going to see the face of our King. And you and I won't have any problem making a unified decision that day. For all who put their trust in Jesus from every nation, tribe, and language, we will fall on our faces in adoration as we enter into eternal joy under His rule and His reign overall. So we pray, O oh God, please, please, Jesus, be the center. Grant us grace to work together for unity. Help us to love one another well so that the world might know that Jesus Christ is King. We pray this together with one voice in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...
5: trust in Jesus' name. So when darkness. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil Christ alone, cornerstone weak and made strong in the Savior's love through the storm He is God Lord I
0: ministries awaits for your participation for listeners survey your opinion is highly valued all gathered information will be for heart and soul gospel ministries it will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel you may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or go online at www.heartandsoul.org Our return address for paper survey is 12802 North 28th Drive, Phoenix, Arizona, 85029. This survey ends November 15th. We wait for your participation and thank you for your input. Coming up next is Understanding Israel.
6: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another program in our series, Understanding Israel. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Today, we will be studying the first feast that was ordained by God, and it is the Feast of Passover. First, let's look at what was going on that made this first feast. Jacob, whom God gave the name Israel, had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel those twelve sons and their households moved to Egypt. Now let's look in Exodus chapter 1 verses 6 through 11. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, The people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, and fight against us, and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities Pithom and Ramses. For the next 430 years, life as a slave laborer was very hard, and God, in his mercy and compassion, brought them Moses to deliver them. Moses went before Pharaoh many times asking to let the people of Israel go, and every time Pharaoh refused. God sent a plague upon the people of Egypt. The last plague is recorded in Exodus chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Then in chapter 12, verses 1-3, through God said, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now we will skip to verse 5a. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. And verses 6 and 7. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And then finally in verse 13, the Lord finishes speaking by saying, The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then God makes an ordinance of the Passover, and in verse 42 he says, It is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them, Israel, out from the land of Egypt, this night is for the Lord, to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. And then in an interesting note in verse 46 regarding the Passover lamb, It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Now that we have established the history of the Feast of Passover, let's look at how this feast points to Jesus. First, the Passover lamb was to be taken care of for four days, becoming a favorite among the family members. Jesus was Father God's favorite, as we see in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit alighted on him. And in verse 17, Matthew writes, And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Second, the Passover lamb had to be unblemished and healthy. Jesus was perfect and sinless, as Pilate stated in Luke chapter twenty three, verses thirteen through fifteen. Pilate summoned the chief priests and rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Next, the Passover lamb had to be one year old, which is considered the prime of life for sheep. Jesus was about 33 years old when he entered Jerusalem, and in that time, that age was considered the prime of life. Before the Passover is to be celebrated, the Jews were to clean all the leaven, which represents sin, out of their houses. And after Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went to the temple as described in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 and 46. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Then the Passover lamb had to be in the house for four days, where everyone in the family got to know him and love him. And Jesus was in the area of Jerusalem and teaching in God's house, the temple, for those four days. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 48, he writes, And they, the chief priests and scribes, could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. The people who were in the temple were getting to know Jesus and loving everything he was teaching them. Then the Passover lamb was to be killed at twilight. God brought twilight to Jesus, as Matthew wrote in chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour is about three o'clock in the afternoon, and it lasted until about six o'clock. And in verse 50, Matthew wrote, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Next, the Passover lamb was to be exposed to fire. Fire represents God's judgment, and Jesus was exposed to God's wrath and judgment for all the world, past, present, and future. Lastly, the Passover lamb was not to have any of his bones broken, and in John chapter 19 verse 33, we see that after the soldiers broke the legs of the other two on their crosses, John writes, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And in verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The early Christians saw the fulfillment of the Messiah in Passover. In Exodus, the Passover lamb was a new beginning in the Promised Land, freedom from the slavery of Egypt and fellowship with God through Moses and the law. After Jesus' death and resurrection, accepting Jesus as your savior, the Lamb of God offers a new beginning with him, freedom from the slavery of sin and fellowship with the Father through Jesus, our Redeemer, now and forever. This ends our program for today, and I look forward to discussing the next feast next week. God bless you all, and goodbye.